Today we are continuing in our series in which we're looking at the kings of Israel and Judah. And the reason we're looking at them is because they had the mission of ruling over Israel on God's behalf. And on our first sermon, we talked about how we have our own responsibilities, our own areas that God has given us to rule over. And as Christians, we are also supposed to use those abilities, those opportunities, those responsibilities to, to follow God and to, to uh, accomplish his purposes in the world. And so as we look at the successes and failures of the kings of Israel, we see the pitfalls and the opportunities that we have as we follow Jesus. Now, today we are studying David, and uh, one of the things I was keenly aware of preparing for this sermon is that in one sermon, I am going to cover the longest sustained story in the Bible. Uh, there is more, if you look at individual tellings, uh, the story of David from 1 Samuel 16 to 1 Kings 2 is longer than any one of the Gospels, by quite a bit, actually. Uh, so this is the longest story, and it's also a story that we tend to tell just probably because it's so long, we tend to tell bits and pieces, sections of the story. And today we're going to look at the section that we don't usually talk about very often. What I want to do to start out with is I want to give you a graph, a completely subjective graph. The numbers mean nothing except to just kind of give you an idea of the success of David's reign as king. This is how I have, I have graphed it. Uh, those are based on the chapters of the of 2 Samuel to 1 Kings. That's David's career as king. So it starts out with some pretty good things for him. He becomes king of Judah in chapter 2, um, the biggest tribe, and then he becomes king of all Israel in chapter 5. He conquers Jerusalem, and then he, um, he has a special covenant with God, which is almost the peak because God basically says, all right, you did the things right that Saul did wrong. Therefore, your dynasty is going to rule forever. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty high success, uh, professional success, right? But then the very next chapter, it talks about how he then goes on to conquer all the threats around him. And he has gone from being a leader of an upstart kind of rebellious nation when he becomes king to being a, having an empire in the Middle East. And then things kind of plateau, and then they start to go downhill. He's caught in adultery and murder, publicly caught out in adultery and murder. Um, then his daughter is raped by one of his sons. That son is murdered by another son. The second son launches a revolt against him. He manages to actually take the kingdom from David for a little while. Then David wins the war and gets the kingdom back at the cost of his son's life. And then there's another revolt against him, which he manages to defeat. And then right at the end of his life, a third son tries to steal the crown. And then, but that's not the son that he wants to be king, so he makes a fourth son king, and then he gives that son the crown and a hit list and tells him to go kill some people, and then he dies. That's David's reign. And we tend to focus on the story really up to, uh, we tend to go to the 2 Samuel 11 when he's caught in adultery, and that's often where we stop the story. We might talk about how God forgives him and punishes him a little bit, and then we kind of end the story and we jump to Solomon. So today what I'm going to do, because I think for us, as, as, also peop as people who have also been given the task to rule on God's behalf, we should be concerned with the second half of that, right? Like we should be concerned with wanting to avoid that second half of the graph. So the question is, what happened there? 
what was going on and how can we make sure that our careers reigning on God's behalf don't go that way. That's what we're going to do today. And so we're going to tell a long, a long story, um, and I'm, I'm going to hopefully cover it succinctly, but still t- give you the important points for you to understand what the book of 2 Samuel is showing us through all of these events. So the question is, what went wrong? That's what we want to know as we look at how that all went downhill. What went wrong? When it starts, the first thing that goes wrong in David's reign is in 2 Samuel 11. It says, one evening David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hethite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. So he sees a woman, he likes her, he takes her, doesn't matter that she's married, doesn't matter to him, and then she gets pregnant, and so he has her husband killed so that he can get away with it and keep the woman and the baby. Okay? So what he does is uh, he sent a letter to Joab, who is the, the commander-in-chief of the army, and it says, put your eye at the front of the fiercest fightings, fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out to attack and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hethite also died. So, things start to go downhill when David took a woman he desired and murdered her husband. Now, at this point in the story, it's important for us, the Bible is all, especially the Old Testament stories, are all about patterns. So there's some key elements of what happened here that I want us to remember as we're looking at the rest of the story of David, okay? First, so David's behavior establishes a pattern that we will return to. The first thing that he does is indulge your desires, okay? That's what David does. He indulges his desires. Second, take what you want. So he indulges his desires because he didn't, he didn't go out looking for Bathsheba. He noticed her, and then he lingered, right? He indulged his desire for her, and then he acted on it. He take, take what you want, and then use violence to remove any obstacles. This is the pattern of his behavior, and, and all of this becomes public knowledge. The whole story becomes public knowledge, and so everybody knows this is what David does. This is what our king does, okay? So then... Nathan, the prophet, confronts David and he says, Why have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hethite with the sword and took his wife as your own. You murdered him with the Ammonite's sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hethite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on your, you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. So those are the consequences that God declares. And when we hear God declare consequences and punishments, we typically, I think our, our default reaction is to then assume God is going to inter, uh, intervene supernaturally to make these things happen. People will unwittingly participate, but God is going to orchestrate things so that they happen that way. And I don't think that that is what's, uh, I don't think that that's how it often works out in the Bible. Because when we sin, 
God doesn't actually have to intervene all that much for there to be bad consequences for us. Probably one of the easiest things that God does is bring consequences on people who hurt others. That's why sin is wrong, is because it creates damage. And so often what happens is that God's punishment for us is to stop intervening and to let us experience the consequences of our own behavior. And so I'm going to argue, as we look at the rest of the story, that this God accomplished what he's describing here, not by intervening to make things happen, because we're not going to see a whole lot of God intervening in things that we can't explain except by divine power. It's actually all going to make sense. And what seems more like what God is doing is God has said, all right, I'm not going to intervene as you deal with the consequences of what you've done. So God punished David by making him live in the kingdom that his actions created. Because as a king, you set the norm. And people are going to think, well, if that's what the king does, that's what's right. That's what we do. And so they're going to follow that pattern. And what we see in the rest of the story of David's reign is that pattern continuing to unfold. So the very first thing that happens narratively after David and the whole story of David and Bathsheba is that in chapter 13, it says, Some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, Tamar, and David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. So these are half-siblings. Amnon is half-brother to Tamar and Absalom. Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar because she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to do anything to her. Now, it's important to note in the use of language here, it says in the first part that he loved her, but then notice the way it describes his frustration. Is, Is it really love that he's feeling? He's frustrated that he can't do anything to her. It's not love, right? Um, And so what he does is he comes up with, he pretends to be sick, and he asks his sister to come take care of him. And then when she comes to take care of him, he attacks her. And it says, Amnon refused to listen to her when she protests, and because he was stronger than her, he disgraced her by raping her. So David's son Amnon wanted his half-sister Tamar and took her. Does that sound familiar? Like father, like son. Now, it's a different circumstance, but it is a similar pattern of behavior. So, uh, but Tamar has a brother, Absalom. Absalom is uh, very angry. He's angry at, uh, at, his, at Amnon for what he did and also at David for not doing anything. And so, because David doesn't punish him. So, uh, Absalom waits two years and then he invites all his brothers to a party. Absalom is his father's son, so when he has an obstacle, what is he going to do? He's going to get together some servants of his and have them commit an act of violence. So Absalom commanded his young men, watch Amnon until he is in a good mood from the wine. When I order you to strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Am I not the one who has commanded you? Be strong and and valiant. So Absalom's young men did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. So, Tamar's brother Absalom hated Amnon, so he murdered him. Familiar, form of, uh, familiar behavior. Now, Absalom goes on the run. David is angry. But eventually, David allows Absalom to return. And Absalom pretends to be grateful to return, but Absalom has other plans. He's actually, he starts 
sitting at the city gates and interacting with people as they come into Jerusalem to win the population over to liking, to loving him. And he says, basically says, the king doesn't have time for you, so bring your problems to me. And then he's the one who's actually fixing people's problems. People become a really big fun, fan. People become really big fans of Absalom. So then, when four years had passed, Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron to fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. Go in peace, the king said to him. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent agents throughout the tribes of Israel with this message. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, you are to say, Absalom has become king in Hebron. Absalom wanted the kingdom, so he took it. I mean, he was, he was the oldest son left. Amnon was the oldest. Now Absalom's conveniently the oldest. He had a pretty good claim to expect the throne, but he wanted to take it now, so he took it. But he needed to, he needed to make sure that because this is a civil war he's launching, he needed to make sure that his side was committed. He needed to make sure that people knew this wasn't something that was going to be resolved easily. If you side with me, we are fighting this out to, so that I'm king. I will settle for nothing less. So he has to kind of like do the Cortez burning his ships thing. So he asks his advisors, what should I do? Ahithophel replied to Absalom, sleep with your father's concubines, whom he had left to take care of the palace. When all Israel hears that you have become repulsive to your father, everyone with you will become encouraged. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in sight of all Israel. Absalom wanted the kingdom, so he took it, and he took his father's wives. Now notice... What did God do to, like, this is the fulfillment of that specific prophecy that Nathan gave. What did God do to make that happen? What does the narrator want us to see God doing? He doesn't, he doesn't have to say that God did anything because this is, what, this is what naturally happened because of the pattern that David set in his kingdom. We, maybe he did do some things behind the scenes. We don't know, but the, apparently it isn't important for us in the story. You can explain everything that has happened just with human brokenness and patterns of family sin, right? So David fights back, but he's still a father. He doesn't want his son to die. So he, says, he tells his men, when you go out, um, defeat him, but don't kill Absalom. Spare Absalom for my sake. For my sake. And, it, and everybody hears it. The text tells us everyone heard him give that command. Um, oh, that's actually on the slide. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and, Atai, and Ittai, treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake. All the people heard the king's orders to all the commands about Absalom. So what happens? Well, this is kind of a funny part of the story. Absalom has long, luxurious hair that he's very proud of. And he's running away from the battle and he gets it caught in a tree. And the donkey runs away without him, and he's left hanging in the tree by his hair. And Joab finds him, and he took three spears in his hand and thrust them into Absalom's chest. While Absalom was still alive in the oak tree, ten men who were Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Now, should David have been surprised at the behavior of Joab? I don't know whether he... So what was the first thing that we saw Joab do in this story was kill Uriah the Hittite, right? So whether Joab was already that way, and that's why David asked him, or whether Joab learned it from David telling him to assassinate one of his own soldiers, Joab is clearly on board with this power politic murdering for 
for policy, you know, murdering for power kind of approach. So David's hitman, Joab, killed Absalom against David's wishes. Not actually that surprising, considering the fact that David has already used Joab to kill people before. So David wins the war, and he goes back um, to take over the kingdom. And uh, several other things happen. There's more steps in this where, like, Joab kills... Uh, David tries to fire Joab for killing his son, and then Joab, then he so he puts another guy in place, and Joab murders that guy, and so Joab gets the job back because apparently you can murder someone and then get their job, um, and that's the second time he's murdered someone who might have been a threat to his position as commander in chief. And this other stuff happens at the end of David's reign. It's it's not a great time period. Um, there's a rebellion. The northern ten tribes rebel, and and David. Uh, fights a war and, and wins. And, and then at the end of his life, this will be the first time that Israel has ever handed the crown from one generation to the next. They don't really have rules on which, king, which son gets the crown. And so one of them, having learned this pattern, if you want it, take it, he decides, well, I'm going to make a play for the crown. Dad's pretty old. He's not really very aware, so I'm going to do it. So Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him, David, and never rebuked him, saying, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was next, born next after Absalom. So the two oldest sons have died. Now he's the oldest. He's thinking, well, I should get the throne. So he makes a play for it. Adonijah conferred with Joab the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they gave him their support. So, a new conspiracy to seize the throne. Joab's mixed up in it again. That guy keeps turning up like a bad penny. He's in all the worst stories. And David hears about it, and there's this like counter-conspiracy where other people like Bathsheba and Nathan, and uh, they, they come to David and remind David that he said Solomon could be king. And so David makes Solomon king, and then he says, he basically at the end says, okay, but if you're going to do this, uh, remember, you've got to kill some people. You've got to kill, um, kill Joab, because he deserves it. And there was one guy that cursed me when I was on the run in that civil war, and I told him I wouldn't hurt him, but I really want him to die. So kill that guy too. And like, he gives him a hit list, and it's like the end of The Godfather. It actually is. Like some people think that's where they got the storyline of just going out and the new person in power kills everybody who's a threat. Because what does Solomon do when he becomes king? He's, uh, he says, May God punish me and do so severely if Adonijah is not, has not made this request at the cost of his life. Adonijah asked Solomon if he could marry one of David's concubines, which is a play for power. And now, as the Lord lives, the one who established me, seated me on the throne of my father David, and made me a dynasty, as he promised, I swear Adonijah will be put to death today. So King Solomon dispatched Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, who struck down Adonijah, and he died. So one more instance of a, of a brother killing a brother. Uh, then the news reached Joab, since he had supported Adonijah and not Absalom. Joab fled to the Lord's tabernacle and took a hold of the horns of the altar. It was reported to King Solomon, Joab has fled to the Lord's tabernacle, is now beside the altar. So Solomon sent Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and told him, go and strike him down. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, went up, struck down Joab, and put him to death. He was buried, his house in the wilderness. 
And the king commanded Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck Shimei down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in Solomon's hands. So he has this guy who carries a sword and a violin case go around and kill all these people. And now his kingdom is established because David has set a pattern of power politics by his behavior. So David's remaining sons continued a pattern of selfishness and murder. And the important thing as we look back on all, the reason why I tell this whole sordid tale is for you to recognize that the violence and chaos of David's reign follows the pattern of his own sin. None of them do exactly what David did, but it all rhymes. Right? They're all following the same patterns. And I don't know about you, but I think one of, the, one of the big parts of becoming an adult, one of the big journeys that we all go on is realizing just how we were formed by our parents. And maybe also realizing how your parents were formed by their parents. And then, re- then paying close attention to how you're forming your children. Right? Like that generational influence that we have. Or just the way we influence people that aren't in our family. Like you start spending time around someone and you start talking like them. You ever done that? Um, we influence people a lot. And um, David's influence, based on this one huge sin that he committed, was, uh, it was ripples of destruction and harm. And the reason why I reflect on this is because these patterns and this tendency in, in human relationships holds true for us today in our, own, in our own responsibilities as Christians. As we look at the kingdom of heaven, and which, of which we are a part, it's important for us to remember that as rulers, our actions are never isolated. They create the world we live in. You may do, a, you may do something wrong and think nobody saw it, nobody was hurt by it, nobody will ever be affected by it. But the truth is that the things we do create the world that we live in. Maybe the things that you do that nobody knows about, maybe they form your character. Maybe they form your attitudes. Maybe they form the way you treat other people. The things you do to other people definitely form them. They form the people watching. Any of you with kids realize the first time, remember the first time you realized that your kids were watching you and they were learning things when you weren't trying to teach them? (laughs) It's scary. And we see this principle in the New Testament that the, your actions create the world you live in. Probably the most obvious place where Jesus mentions this is when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and they come to arrest him and uh, Paul, Peter pulls out a sword to defend him. And Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Your taking up the sword will affect the world that you live in. It will pitch you into a world of violence. If you're going to live by the sword, then you're going to stand and fall on, on your ability to win a fight. This comes up in other places too, places where I wasn't always aware. I'm going to read you a passage that I, at least in Luke's version, um, I I think I'd been misinterpreting it for a while. Jesus says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, my default assumption was that in this passage, it's talking about if you don't judge other people, God won't judge you. 
And if you don't condemn other people, then God won't condemn you. And if you forgive other people, God will forgive you. And there are places in the New Testament where it does say that. There is a connection between how we treat other people and how God treats us. But when he talks about giving and it will be given to you, that doesn't seem like something that, like, if we give to God, God gives to us. That's not, that's not quite the, trans- the way God talks about giving, that you can give God things and he'll give things back. And then if you look at the metaphor that he's using, he says, it talks about a measure, a measure pressed down and shaken together and running over. He's talking about the way they sold things in the market back then. You would go to the market and they didn't have, like what you would do is you, if you wanted to buy a certain amount of grain, they had something that they would use to measure out the grain. Or maybe you would, and then they would have something they would use to measure out the silver that you gave them for the grain. And what he's saying is, like, you could say, all right, I'll give you, like, someone asks you for a cup of sugar, right? You could say, all right, here's a cup of sugar, and it's like, it's really three quarters of a cup because you barely filled it. Or you could do a heaping cup of sugar and, it's, and give it to them. Now, how do you think that might affect their, your neighbor's behavior when you ask them for sugar? Right? What he's saying is that if you are generous, if you give, then people will be generous when they give to you. He's using a market metaphor. The, what, uh, the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The scale you use to measure the silver that people owe you is the way you'll be measured when you owe other people. There's a connection between the way we treat other people and the way people treat us. We live in the world our actions create. If you are habitually dishonest, people will not trust you, right? People will have less scruples of their own of cheating you. You will live in a dishonest world because you, were, you are dishonest. If you, live in an, if you are honest, if you are generous, it's not absolute, but in general, you will live in a world where people trust you more. People are more likely to be honest with you. And when we act out of selfish desire, we create a selfish world. And we have to live in it. David acted out of selfish desire, and he had to spend the rest of his life living in a world that in large part he created. Now, everybody else had, role, had made decisions to participate in that, right? Everybody else who, who had a choice whether they were going to act like David at his worst or not. But David had a role in setting that norm in his community and in his area of influence. So that's why God didn't actually have to intervene very much to punish David. He actually just didn't protect him from what he had done. So if you act selfishly, you will create a selfish world. So what do we have to do if we want a selfless world? We want to live in a selfless world. We have to be selfless. What if we want to live in a world where we are forgiven? We have to forgive. What if we want to live in a world where we don't have to walk on eggshells all the time? Then we have to not put other people on eggshells. We have to live in the world. We have, to, we have to behave in ways that create the world we want to live in. And that's really hard to do because you have to take the first move, right? You have to take the first step and other people, without a guarantee that people will treat you the same way. So how can we create that kind of world? Well, that's where the power of the gospel comes in. I'm going to read you a passage that will end 
with a particular verse. And I've done this before with you, but to me, every time I read it, it's, it's powerful to connect these two things. We often separate the end of this passage from the beginning, but they flow together. Here's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law of the prophets. Notice that the golden rule is not just some good moral advice that we should all just be able to follow because we're enlightened. The golden rule is built on the generosity of God. Jesus says, God is a good father who will take care of you. And because he will take care of you, you can trust in his care for you to support you as you create, as you pass that on to create the kind of world that God wants this world to be. God has taken it upon himself to be the one who absolutely gives and is generous regardless of whether people are generous to him, regardless of whether others reciprocate it. He is the one who gives himself even when everyone else takes. And because of that, because God always acts to create the world that he wants to live in, we are then able to receive all of that from him and then go out into the world and do the same thing. Why can I be generous with other people even though they might cheat me? Because I know that God is in control and that God is generous with me. Why can I forgive people even though I don't know whether they'll forgive me? Because I know God forgives me. Why can I do the thing that is right even if I don't know whether it'll pay off in the short term? Because God is in control of the long term. So the gospel enables us to live this out in a real and powerful way. The generosity of God gives us the freedom and therefore the responsibility to create a world of generosity around us. Because God is generous with us, with his love, with his forgiveness, with his support of our needs, with all of those things, we can therefore be generous with others. And that is our role as God acts in a way to create the world he wants to live in, we can pass that on to others. And that's how we help to create the world that God wants this to be. So I want to ask you as we close, where are you in this this kingdom that God is creating? Have you given your life to the kingdom of God? Have you committed to receiving his grace and passing it on to others? If you haven't, today is the best day to make that decision. If you, want to, if, if you need to give your life to Jesus, today is the day. You can fill out that red card, or better yet, you can talk to me after the service. Um, if you want to get more connected with this church to learn what that journey looks like, you can also fill out that card, that uh, connect card. Maybe you are... You've given your life to Jesus, but you realize that you haven't been, that you've been being more like David, that you've been living in selfish ways that create a selfish world around you, and you need to turn that around. It is never too late. The grace of God can transform every situation, and so today can be the day for you to rededicate yourself to obedience to God's pattern, to obedience to God's grace. 
Maybe you're looking to be a part of a, of a church family that encourages each other to live in God's grace and does what we, everything we can to be a community united in that grace. That's who Turner Christian Church is. We love for you to become more involved either by joining small groups or serving in our teams or placing membership. The, the key thing is that as believers, we are called to create that community, create that world, and that is precisely what Turner Christian Church is working to do and to be. We'd love for you to join with us in that. God may be putting something else on your heart, and I encourage you, as always, to take this as an opportunity to say yes to the prompting God has put on your heart. But I ask you to be open to what the Spirit is saying as we stand and sing our final song.